Good afternoon, this is Quintus Curtius, and welcome back to the Fortress of the Mind podcast. And I'm going to be entitling this episode of the podcast, Learning to Control, or Learning to Accept Things That You Can't Control. Learning to Accept Things That You Can't Control. Although in this episode, I'm going to be talking about various different things that came up while I was thinking about this subject of learning to accept things that you can't control, because it's kind of a wide topic has been talked about by me indirectly here and there, but I thought it would be good to get a more comprehensive view of that and to bring in a lot of my own personal life experiences, which an email that I got from a reader prompted me to consider. So I'll start with the um, idea that I got to do this podcast, because it's been a few days since I've checked in with everybody. And I got an, I got an email yesterday, um, and his initials were M.V., and I think he's from, I think he's from Europe. Just judging by the last name, looks like a, a, a Slavic last name here. And he says, um, uh, "Dear Quintus, I've been listening to your Fortress of the Mind podcasts. I am really impressed with your vast knowledge and abundance of wisdom." Well, thank you, Envy. I appreciate that. <laughs> I have my moments. He says, "Can you tell the viewers some more life stories?" In one of your podcasts, you mention about being in a movie theater alone. Then two average guys with attractive women rolled up and you had to leave the cinema in frustration. That is some emotion. What What is your opinion about serving in the military? Any good slash bad experiences? Well, first off, for those who don't know what he's talking about, it's what, what he's referring to is in one of my podcasts. I, I can't remember now which one it was off the top of my head, but in one of my podcasts, I, I, I talked about one of those moments in life that was uh, a defining crystalline moment you know one where you you focus all of your anger and your frustration and 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 use that to channel that to do positive change and what he's referring to is there was a scene this was many years ago when I was back just just gotten out of college and you know I was just basically not happy at all with my level of success with women I was not happy at all with my social life my dating life and I couldn't really figure out how to turn it around. I couldn't really figure out what I was doing wrong. And you have to remember, in those days, and this is the late 80s, you know, there was none of this stuff that you have, there was none of this game culture or you know, self-improvement or any of the internet. There's none of this stuff. Really, the only way to learn how to do these things was you sort of had to imitate what other people were doing who were successful and try to use what you saw in television, movies, friends, things like that. And, you know, it was somewhat balanced out by the fact that I think women were a lot easier to approach in those days than they are now. You know, this, it, it, it's, it's true that there was less resources, but that, that was somewhat balanced out by the fact that I think things were a little bit easier. Maybe not that much easier, but a little bit easier anyway. So in any case, I took that lesson, that, that period of frustration. You know, I was, I was in the movie theater. And I was sitting there alone, and I saw these other guys come in, and I said to myself, why isn't that me? Like, what, what am I doing wrong? What, what, is, what is the reason? You know, and I was just so, so furious with the frustration, with the, the, the failure. And I said, I'm, I'm tired of failing. The, no more failing. No more failures. So I used that, and I just started approaching. I just started approaching and approaching and approaching. I didn't care if I got blown off. I didn't care if I was humiliated. I didn't care anymore. And slowly, surely, over a period of time, 
I began to see results and I made positive changes and I was happy with my level of improvement. And that's how you had to be in those days. There was no whining, crying on the internet. There was no, uh, well, I suppose there were, and there, look, there are always going to be people that are whiners and complainers. There are always going to be people that are looking for excuses and not want to do things to improve themselves. And I, I think the only difference is between me and maybe someone else was I had the desire to change. I had the focus. I had the discipline. I had the intensity. I was willing to go through the agony of that self-improvement. And that's really what you need. You've got to be prepared to get into the weeds, to get down in the dirt, and you've got to fight it out. There's no substitute. There's no replacement. But, you know, I will say this. I will say that it's not often in your life that you can have this sort of a crystalline moment where you can pinpoint a precise moment where you decided to make a change. It usually doesn't happen that way in life. Usually what happens is change happens over a period of time. There's never really any one specific point at which the switch is the, the, the switch is flipped. Okay. There's never any one specific point at which the, the switch is turned on. More it's more like your mentality goes through a gradual morphing process. You gradually grow out of one frame of reference and adopt another frame of reference. And that's usually how it happens in life. But there are exceptions, and that movie theater incident was one such exception. There is another one. It's not a military experience one, but it's a it's one it's a physical fitness one. And to me it was important, but I'll relate it anyway because uh reader M V here is asking for uh switch flipping moments and I want to give him one. And this was one about about weightlifting, believe it or not. And I think it's something that every young guy can relate to because I think every young guy should be interested in improving his body, getting stronger, getting uh, bigger muscles. I think it's important for a man's self-esteem. It's something that you're going to do your entire life or you should do your entire life. And the story basically begins when I was in college and I was in Boston at the time. This was back in the, the, you know, I'm I'm 47 years old. So uh, this would have been you know, I was in college from 1986 to 1990. So this was about 1987, I think, 1987. And I was, you know, then as now, there was a huge market for, you know, these uh, weightlifting and muscle building pills and powders and supplements. And this has always been a big industry. It's always been a, a big industry. And I think it was just as big or at least as prevalent uh, back in the 80s and 90s as it is now. Uh, it will maybe was not as sophisticated, but there was all the same stuff. There were all the powders and the proteins and this and that and everything. I remember, um, you know, in Kendall Square in Cambridge, you know, there was a a big health store, you know, where you could, and, and as a young guy, you'd go into these places and you would just be overwhelmed. You would get baffled. You would be totally overwhelmed by all this stuff. And you'd be like, man, what, you know, what do I buy? What do I need any of this stuff? And if so, what do I need? And you eventually just get overwhelmed by that. You try to read the magazines. You try to read books. You try to read this. You try to read that. You talk to people at the gym. And pretty soon, you're just overwhelmed with information. Everybody you talk to has his own pet theory. Every book you read has its own pet theory. Every magazine is advocating this or that and do more reps or uh, do more sets or do less intensity, do more intensity, rest, don't rest, go three times a week, go two times a week, go five times a week. And after a while, 
If you're a young guy and you're without really any specific guidance that anybody's giving you, you know, you just don't know who to listen to anymore. You don't know who to listen to. You don't know who to believe. And that's kind of where I was. I was trying to grow muscle. I was trying to improve myself because, you know, I had to have a high level of of strength as well as endurance, you know, for, you know, being in the ROTC, being, uh, you know, trying to go to ultimately being trying to get ready to go to Marine Corps OCS between my junior and senior years. I had to be at a certain level of strength and endurance. So I was trying to, to do everything. And after a while, you know, you, you just get overwhelmed, or at least I was overwhelmed. And I happened to be walking around Boston. I happened, I wandered into, uh, then as now, I like to haunt bookstores, as you can imagine. And I wandered into Barnes & Noble. And in those days, Barnes & Noble was, uh, I probably still is, you know, one of the bigger bookstores in Boston. And I wandered in there, and in one of the bins, I found a book, and it was called The Nautilus Bodybuilding Book. It was by Dr. Ellington Darden, Ph.D. Okay, The Nautilus Bodybuilding Book by Ellington Darden. And there was just something about this book, the cover maybe, the thickness. And I picked it up, and I started reading it, because I had seen these Nautilus machines you know, in the gym. And there the, then as now, there was the big debate that everybody always has What's better? Are machines better? Are free weights better? Or is a combination better? You know, blah, 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 all that stuff. So I started reading this book and I said to myself, man, this, this, this has the ring of truth here. This, this book actually gives you a specific program to follow. And it basically says how so many guys waste time in their workouts by doing too much too many repetitions, too many sets. They overtrain. They do too much. What they don't do is they don't focus on intensity. And the author's view is that if you want to build muscle, you have to work out less frequently, but with more intensity. You have to work out the whole body. You have to use uh, exercises that activate the full range of the body's potential. You have to you know, do the, the legs and the up, middle and upper body all at once to stimulate. There's, it's a whole philosophy, okay? Now, I don't want this podcast to turn into a big debate where people email me and they say, oh, you're full of shit, Quintus, and, you know, free weights are better and Nautilus sucks and, you know, uh, he's wrong and it's been proven. And, you know, I, again, because you were getting right back, you know, the truth is I don't know anymore who's right and who's wrong. All I know is what works for me, Okay. All I know is what works for me. And at least with this book, I got a program. I got direction. I got guidance that seemed to work. And I had the conviction to put it into practice. You know, in those days, uh, there, Nautilus was, I th- maybe maybe still is, I don't know. Uh, I, you know, I heard the company was bought out or, dis- or uh, dissolved at some point. Uh, but in, in the late 80s, Nautilus was the big machine company for, for, uh, for weight rooms. At least as far as I could tell. And, you know, I used to love these machines, man. You know, they had they had things that you just don't see anymore. They had these compound machines like compound chest where you could do like flies. You could do uh, ch- flies with the chest and then follow it by a compound, um, you know, like a, uh, you know, other exercises. And by using the instructions in this book, by only working out with weights three times a week, by focusing my workouts on high intensity, low reps, but high intensity, I saw my muscle mass explode. Well, maybe not explode is the right word, but 
I saw very, very rapid gains in a very short amount of time. And I felt like all of my flummoxing around, you know, with free weights and with other uh, inefficient training methods were a waste of time. Okay, so, uh, you know, I would recommend anybody, if you can find this book, if you can find it on, it's probably on Amazon. I don't know if it's still in print. I probably should check it out. Uh, but if you can, I've lost my copy since. I, I had it with my stuff for years and somehow in, in a move, it somehow was misplaced. But I've never forgotten this book. And like I said, is the science accurate? I don't know. But I do know that it worked for me. And it gave me a roadmap. And sometimes that's that's what you really need. It doesn't really matter so much if the guidance is perfectly correct, if it's ideal. At least it was right. Now, I do tend to think, as I've gotten older, that I think the best workout method, at least for me, is to use a combination of, of free weights and machines. Because I, I think the, the, the bigger thing of, of any workout is not to fall into a rut. You've got to do things that get you variety, if only for mental and psychological health. You, you can't do the same workout all the time because then you will see plateaus. You will plateau off and you will not improve and you will stagnate and you'll just lose interest. So that is another one of my moments where I can pinpoint a specific time where I made, where I actually, a switch was flipped and I made positive changes and growth in a certain direction and that was with muscle building and you know you can say that um, it's not that important but it for a young guy it, it really was important it really was because it's nice to see your energies and your work to pay off it, it really is nice to see that happen but most of life is not like that most of life is Growth happens gradually. It doesn't really have, there is no eureka moment. There is no Archimedes moment where you leap out of the hot bath and you say, I found it, I found it, eureka, eureka, and you run down the street with a towel hanging off your waist. It doesn't happen that way. you know. And one of the best examples of that, I think, you know, and the, the emailer here talked about experiences of serving in the military and one of the best examples or illustrations of the gradual enlightenment as opposed to the rapid enlightenment happens with the putting into practice leadership traits and principles and not a lot of, not a lot of people talk about this and i think it's because not a lot of guys out there who have podcasts who write blogs they don't they've never been in leadership positions they don't they don't know anything you know they're they're basically lone wolves who've never really had uh, legitimate jobs or, you know, do not, uh, you know, their work experiences are, are spotty at best, you know, and, you know, those of us who actually have, have had leadership experience, have had experience, you know, building businesses or been in leadership positions or, or actually done these things know that this stuff is not something that you can just lecture someone to in a podcast. you actually have to live it. And, you know, when I was, um, when we go to uh, the Marine Corps OCS between our, our junior and senior year in, in, in college, you know, they made us memorize, actually even before we go there, we had to memorize the Marine Corps leadership uh, traits and principles. And, you know, you memorize these things and you recite them by rote. 
but they don't really mean that much to you until you've had a chance to see them in action and put them in practice. And you put them in practice when you're out in the fleet and you're actually in positions of leadership. And even after that, after you get out, you know, you've got a business where you're, you're servicing clients, you're dealing with people, which is what I've done for, you know, 17 years, and you're, you're dealing with people, you know, you actually see how these things play out in the real world. So I'll recite them just because I feel like I want to, and they've always stuck with me. These are the Marine Corps leadership principles. And they are these. It's know yourself and seek self-improvement. Number two, be technically and tactically proficient. Three, develop a sense of responsibility among your subordinates. Four, make sound and timely decisions. Five, set the example. Very, very important. Six, know your people and look out for their welfare. Seven, know your people or keep your people informed. Eight, seek responsibility and take responsibility for your actions. Nine, ensure ensure assigned tasks are understood, supervised, and accomplished. Ten, train your people as a team. And eleven, employ your command in accordance with its capabilities. And that's that's a good one, too. In other words, know what your limits are. Don't overstretch. And, you know, the young guys recite these these principles and... They need to do that. It's it's good. That's the first step in, in having things sink in. But I would guess that for most people, this stuff doesn't really resonate until you've actually lived it, until you've been there, until you've done that. And that's when it really starts to to um, you know to to sink in. So I guess my point is that there are times in life when enlightenment and advancement will come instantly. You will have that moment of clarity. You will have that moment, like I talked about, the movie theater moment, the Nautilus bodybuilding book moment, where change will happen immediately. And then there will be the rest of life, most of life, which is things come to you gradually. And, you know, I had a chance to think about this recently, a lot, actually. I had a chance to think about this recently. As I'm working my way through this book, it's an audio book I'm listening to. It's called uh, River of Doubt. And uh, I've written an article about it, you know, in the past few weeks. It, w- it was about uh, ex-president Theodore Roosevelt's trip down the Amazon, one of the Amazon tributaries called the Rio da Duvida, River of Doubt, with uh, the famous Brazilian explorer Candido Rondon. It's a great book, fan- just on so many levels. I just love this book, and I, I recommend it. If you guys uh, haven't looked at this book, you need to read it. It's just, it's just. at least to me, I just love adventure stories. I love true stories of character under duress. That's what I've been writing about for three years, so you can imagine why I would like a book like this. But anyway, one of the things I've been thinking about is is how, how tragic, one of the, for me, you know, my experience in the military and my experience as an attorney, one of the biggest tragedies or one of the most frustrating things for me to get to wrap my mind around is, you know, you can't help people when they don't want to help themselves. You can't save people who won't save themselves. If someone will not participate in their own rescue, if they will not do what they need to do to pull themselves out of the, the out of the funk that they're in or the the plateau that they're on or the dark place that they're on, you can't do anything. And this sounds like not a big deal, but it is a big deal because for those of us who are action-oriented, who like to take action, 
who like to perform, who like to try to take steps to solve problems. It's very difficult for us to accept that there are some problems that we cannot solve. It's very difficult to accept that there are some people we can't help. It's very difficult to accept that there are some things that you have to just let it ride out. And that is a hard, hard lesson to to internalize. Let me tell you, it is very hard. Because, you know, in my job now where I meet with clients, I have to advise them on how to get themselves out, out of their problems. There are some people that don't want to hear it. There are some people that don't want to solve problems. There are some people who want to complain. They want to whine or they want to bury their head in the sand or they want to avoid the problem and they don't want to solve the problem, you know. And it's a very good lesson to say to yourself, does a person want to fool around or do they want to solve the problem? And those that is the type of question that you need to ask yourself when you're faced with someone that you're trying to help but the advice is falling on deaf ears. And how I started to think about this was the example of, of uh, Theodore Roosevelt's son, Kermit, who accompanied him on this expedition along the Hilda Duvida, the River of Doubt. And Kermit Roosevelt, uh, it's just a very tragic story. Nobody, talk, nobody knows about this guy, but he was one of Theodore Roosevelt's sons. Very, very brilliant kid. Very successful guy. You know, he, he was one of these guys who had an incredible facility for languages. He spoke and could read, I think, five or six languages, including some of the hard ones like Greek and Arabic. Um, and he was a guy who threw himself into the action. He was a guy who was a problem solver. He was a fearless type of guy. And looking back now as I'm reading about this guy, I think he, he I think probably if he was diagnosed modernly, he probably would... Uh, qualify for having suffered for some from some sort of depression or melancholia or something like that and the, the Roosevelt family seemed to attract or um, suffer from this sort of uh, hereditary trait I mean one of Roosevelt's brothers died of alcoholism and and depression I think Roosevelt himself probably suffered from it but in those days you didn't have excuses to fall back on. You know, you you didn't just self-medicate or take a few pills and wine on the internet about it. You had to either solve it or you died. And Roosevelt dealt with his depression and his um, his personality issues by throwing himself into activity. You know, he became a rancher. He entered politics. He became president. He was fearless. Roosevelt's brother did not do that. He declined. He abandoned himself to despair to alcoholism, to drug abuse, and to being uh, a man of, of bad character. But Roosevelt's son Kermit was was a good was a good guy. I mean, he had a good character. He was uh, he he uh, he saved his father basically on the River of Doubt when Theodore Roosevelt was uh, crippled by an injury. He was the one that kept the old man moving. He swore that he would take his father out of there alive, and he did that. He, you know, fulfilled his promise. But the rest of his life somehow just didn't work out. You know, he somehow never was able to overcome his depression and alcoholism. I guess he suffered from it intermittently on and off in his life. And gradually, as you know, after you know, as the twenties rolled on and the nineteen thirties, I mean, he served in the Second World War. He was uh, with the British Army in, in the in the Middle East, in Mesopotamia. You know, he had. Uh, he had every reason to succeed in life, and somehow he just could not overcome his depression 
and he ended up committing suicide. It's a, it's a terrible story, very tragic story. And luckily, Theodore Roosevelt was never alive to see that, to see his son take his own life. It would have killed him, I think, if he had known it. But apparently, Kermit uh, was posted. You know, he he became something of an embarrassment to the Roosevelt family. I think in his later years, I think he was uh, dismissed from the British Army for probably for for alcoholism, and I think he uh, was given a. Franklin Roosevelt, I think, knew about the issue. I think they gave him uh, what they thought was a a safe assignment in Alaska during the Second World War that he could maybe stay out of trouble. But I guess he just was not able to. Um, he was not able to overcome his demons, and he he committed him. He he committed suicide, and I guess the the fact of this death was kept a secret from his mother, and even from the general public for many years. But when I read that, you know, when I heard that story, I I I just you know I just said to myself, man, this is just, you know, why can't why couldn't someone reach out to this guy? Why couldn't somebody make this guy? Uh, stop the road that he was going down. But then I have to say to myself, look, you know, I've seen that in my own life. I've seen people in the military that I've been in charge of. I've seen clients that you you can't you can't save, you can't save them. You try and you try and you try again. But if someone is unwilling to participate in their own rescue, you can't save them. You can't force someone to improve. You can't force someone to get out of the darkness that they're in unless that person takes positive steps to get beyond where they're at the best advice in the world is not going to do anything and for me anyway that has always been a difficult lesson that i've had to remind myself of over and over again i've always known it but it's one of those lessons that you have to learn and relearn and relearn as you go through life because you're going to see it played out over and over again again i I saw it just last week I saw it just last week on Netflix. I was bored, and I saw, I saw this documentary of the the British singer, jazz singer Amy Winehouse, which I'm sure everybody knows. And I'm not a big fan of you know jazz music or female vocalists. You know, I don't know much, but I, I I saw the documentary and I figured it was worth watching because I had heard about her, and she died a few years back of a you know uh, you know alcohol and drug related complications and you know I, I guess I wanted to see the documentary because I had heard some of her music you know on the, on the gym they play her songs and I, when I first heard it I said to myself man this is an incredible vocalist this this sounds exactly like one of those old jazz singers from the 50s the Sarah Vaughn's the you know Etta James you know these and I and it was incredible I mean for I, frankly to be perfectly frank for a white girl and I guess she came from a Jewish background, a white girl. She sounded, it sounded just exactly like a black female vocalist. And I know that's the trend now. That's the, that's the, uh, that, that type of singing, that type of vocalist style is what's popular now. But it, she was able to replicate that old school style of singing to an incredible degree. And these songs like really, you know, I, I really touched me, really resonated with me. So I wanted to see this documentary. And I saw it and I said to myself, man, this is such a tragedy. You know, this is someone who had this natural talent. And yet, either her family or the people around her allowed her to become consumed by the accoutrements of celebrity and the emoluments of the celebrity lifestyle. And this person ended up eventually self-destructing. 
But then, you know, I have to say to myself, you know, because you know, we see this pattern so many times with celebrities. You know, another one of my favorite vocalists, the, uh, the, the lead singer from Alice in Chains, Lane Staley. Incredible singer. I mean, when I first heard this guy's songs in the '90s, I mean, I was I was haunted. I mean, this this you know, certain singers will just touch you. You know, just the way the voices sound, the the the, the words that come out of the mouth, and the way the vocals come out. And Staley was another one of these guys, another one of these vocalists, and again another guy that that slid down the path of drug addiction and eventually self destruction. And you say to these, you know, these these Amy Winehouses, the Lane Staley's of the world, you say, why can't anyone do something to stop this when they see it? But then you have to say to yourself, you have to remind yourself that, you know, if the person themselves does not want to participate in their rehabilitation, nothing you say and nothing you can do is going to change that. Yeah, the families and the entourages around these celebrities share in the blame but ultimately the blame lies with the person themselves if they lack the self-esteem to solve their own problems if they lack the will to get out there and fight for their own survival then nothing anyone says is going to do any good and that to me is one of the lessons that i've had to learn you know besides all the leadership traits and principles they should add that on You'll never see that added on a, as a leadership trait or principle. You know, maybe I'll maybe I'll do that. You know, for my own list, which is, you know, don't try to don't try to save someone who won't save themselves, because, you know, they'll pull you down with them. You know, they'll break your heart. They will frustrate you. They'll cause you to siphon off a lot of energy that's useless and unnecessary, because there's a problem. There's a real problem when you care more about the person that you're trying to save than they care about themselves. And I've had to learn that a lot as an attorney who services clients. There's something wrong. When I care more about the survival of someone who evidently doesn't even care about it themselves, then there's a problem. And that's the advice that I think I would want to impart to uh, this uh, to this guy who sent me this email, Mr. MV, in Eastern Europe. You can't save someone who won't try to save themselves. So remember that. So remember that. And with that, I will wrap up this podcast. I think we've talked enough about those issues for now. And this was brought to you courtesy of Fortress of the Mind Publications. I'm Quintus Curtius. And until next time, you have a good Sunday. And we will revisit here again soon. Take care.